Hello, my name is Peter Abiel, and welcome to the Robot Brains podcast, a show about AI and robots and the brilliant brains who make them. On the podcast, we've had guests who are pioneering AI robotics for a wide range of applications, including healthcare, transportation, logistics, recycling, manufacturing. But what about the way we grow and farm the food we eat? Today here with me is Josh Lessing. Josh is CTO of App Harvest, one of the leading pioneers in agricultural technology or ag tech. At App Harvest, Josh is helping to build some of America's largest and most technologically advanced greenhouses. App Harvest's flagship greenhouse is located in Moorhead, Kentucky, and it spans 60 acres. This modern greenhouse will use 90% less water than traditional open field agriculture. And its central location is within a day's drive of 70% of the U.S. population, allowing App Harvest to reduce the amount of fuel consumed in transportation by 80%. Inside the greenhouse, you'll find conventional agricultural techniques combined with the most advanced AI and robotics technologies to grow non-GMO, chemical-free products. This most advanced technology is, of course, where Josh comes in. He joined App Harvest through the acquisition of his own company, Root AI, earlier this year. So happy to have you here with me. Welcome, Josh. Thank you for having me. So, Josh, what a year it must have been. Your company got acquired. Your company, Root AI, got acquired. You're now part of App Harvest. Now, when I was reading and watching videos about everything you've been doing, of course, the thing that stood out to me right away is your robot, Virgo. Can you say a bit more about that? So Virgo is unique in what it can do. So when we started building Virgo, the goal was to have a system that could be a universal, flexible workforce. Previously, when you look at the history of agriculture and agricultural automation, where you know the tool on the back of a tractor it is a form of automation, when you really think about it, everything has been bespoke. It's one kind of crop in one kind of environmental structuring, even sometimes as specific as a certain kind of plant genetics. Can I get the corn or wheat where everything grows to be the exact same height so that it pairs best with a specific combine? And that's not what we set out to do at Root. What we need is a flexible, agile workforce that does an extremely time-sensitive task on the farm, which is to bring in the harvest. Virgo, to accomplish that, is designed with a human body plan. By that, what I mean is that it uses a set of linkages that are akin to the human body in that shoulder to elbow, elbow to wrist. Its arm is similar to the kinematics of a human arm. We use finger dexterity. We use a envelope, picking envelope, the kind of volume of space that the hands can get to that's very similar to a person. And this is all with the goal of creating a tool that could do tomatoes today, cucumbers tomorrow, strawberries the next day. We've tested on all of this. And it all came from the realization of the following, which is when you look at farms through plant genetics, like how you actually use a conventional breeding of plants to change how the plant is shaped and structured and through environmentally structuring the farm, gutters and trellising and stuff like that, farm after farm in the specialty crop space, a lot of stuff that fills up your grocery store was designed to be picked by people. So if we could build a machine that had that same style, physical style of layout of a robot, and then we put a lot of our investment into the artificial intelligence, both the computer vision to see pick targets, but also the ability to reason through the process of navigating in and out of that environment around leaves, around vines, we could get a, a tool that's universal. And so right now it's the world's first and only cross-crop harvesting platform. We're rolling that out now in Kentucky, and it becomes an ability to synchronize the most important time-sensitive jobs on the farm. And presently, I mean, probably more important than the picking is we're using it as a massive data capture platform so we can drive other important goals, sustainability on the farm, getting to a place where you're not using pesticides and herbicides to make food, which is mm -hmm. conventional. That's facilitated by the data. That's so interesting. So there's so many aspects to what the robot is doing. I'd love to get back to the whole agriculture optimization 
aside from the, the robotic hand activities. If we can first dive a bit deeper in what the robotic hand is doing, you're saying it can pick tomatoes, can pick cucumbers, can pick strawberries. How are these grown? What do the plants look like? And what does the robot actually have to do to do this? So what the crop looks like, you do a lot of environmental structuring inside of a farm indoors or out. And that enables both high density growing. It enables rapid human picking or deleafing or any of a number of crop care tasks. And so if you went into a modern cucumber farm, pepper farm, tomato farm, what you'll see is extremely long vines that are getting trellised up a wire, potentially 12, 16 feet off the ground. The top of the crop is covered with a beautiful leafy canopy that's, that's harvesting light. And at the bottom is a region that is, you know, you have the leaves removed and just have fruit just dangling there in three-dimensional space. And what the robot is seeing then is all of these kind of water-filled baubles. That's what a pepper or a cucumber or a tomato is. And the robot needs to be able to see the leaves, see the complex network of vines for tomatoes, see the trusses, and be able to parse that content and find an unobstructed path to target so that it can reach in and pick. Strawberries are similar but different. What we're doing is what you would call in outdoor farming tabletop strawberries. Eventually, strawberries are grown in these raised soil beds. Strawberries are nasty polluters, making them both fumigants for the soil and everything else. And so in geography after geography, farmers, in part because of regulation and good that there's regulation for the environment, are going to what's called a tabletop system, which is getting the strawberries out of the ground, still in soil, but like on top of, imagine a workbench or a picnic bench or whatever, just a flat plain that's above the ground and putting buckets with soil in it and, and with strawberry crops in it, just in long elevated bench rows. We do the exact same thing inside of a greenhouse as well. So think of like kind of a, a one-dimensional line of just strawberries dangling off of either side of that bench and it creates a great place to then reach in. So it's interesting. The way you described it, you have the leafy parts on top to harvest light. And then in front of the robot, you have all these strawberries or tomatoes or cucumbers. But now, even though there's a lot of them, at least in my experience working at Covariant, sure, the objects are presented in a bin in a warehouse. The objects are right there. There's no leaves in the way. But you still need a lot of intelligence to actually pick the objects out of the bin reliably and place them into another bin. I got to imagine something similar must be going on here for a robot to retrieve one strawberry, one tomato. It has to do some kind of intelligent reasoning to figure that out. There's a phenomenal amount of reasoning that, that goes into orchestrating this. It's both what are, you know, using convolutional neural networks to find what are the steak tomatoes, what are the tomatoes in the environment, using different types of detection to assess quality. Is it ripe enough to pick? Once you have in a single frame, all of your pick targets where, you know, in the pickable zone that the robot arm can reach right now where it's poised, there's going to be a lot of different targets that are eligible, right? Thinking about what is the sequence in which you pick those things and also anticipation of the fact that as you start touching the environment, this is a bit different from the bin picking scenario. Once you start touching a vine environment or a bush environment, things start to sway, right? Think about pendulum motion of tomatoes on the vine. So understanding the strategy that you apply to sequence your picks, that's relevant. And then on top of that, you have leaves, you have vines, you have trusses, you have calyxes, all these aspects of, of anatomy that you need to then find in unobstructed path to. And you also need to, based on the fruit's connectivity back to its plant, how do you do grass pose estimation there, right? These are all the questions that you need to answer. And so, so you're mentioning covariant, there is a ton of work going into solving artificial intelligence for dexterity as it applies to warehouse and manufacturing use case. What we're doing at App Harvest is similar work, but solving the problem as it applies to agriculture. And that comes back to why making a universal robot is at first hard, but then easy and valuable in the sense that once you start going to relying on something that's akin to human dexterity, similar to whether or not, like if I'm in a warehouse and I have an end effector and it's on the end of a universal robot, that bears some similarity to how people pick up in 
So same thing for our system. Once I've agreed that that's the way in which I'm going to approach harvesting and I rely heavily on both the computer vision for identifying targets and the other forms of machine learning that then make a lot of reasoned decisions about how to strategize, all of a sudden you get to another interesting simplification, right? Most people would look at a plant and say that this is utter chaos. It's your classic unstructured picking problem. That's somewhat true. But what a lot of people miss is that there are things that are similar, right? Anatomically similar, like genes dictate the structure of a plant. And there are regular and repeating structural patterns. There are regular and repeating physical attributes. You're talking about a pendulum problem. There are things that are common. And so all of a sudden, instead of there being an infinite number of plants for which you both crops and the individual genetic varieties that you're running to meet consumer demands, instead of there being an infinite number of problems you need to solve, all of a sudden you start running down to a very small number. It is a vine crop, a tomato, a cucumber, pepper, stuff that you run in a greenhouse, the stuff you run outdoor, they're all vine crops with very similar attributes. You start talking about strawberries and raspberries. They're both bush crops, blueberries as well. They're all bush crops, very similar attributes. So solving the more generalized problem of how do I pick a bush? How do I pick a vine? How do I manipulate a head of leafy greens? Start to become classes of problems that we are building out all of the reasoning for in the same way that the people are building out that style of solution for how do I pick a bin? How do I pick a shelf? That's interesting. So then under the hood, I got to imagine, but I, I don't know, of course, but is there a lot of neural nets being trained to recognize what the robot is looking at? A lot of data collected? Very much so. We do a great deal of data capture. Right now for tomatoes, for example, we have, I believe at this point, 50 varieties of tomatoes in our data set. Most people don't appreciate that there are that many different kinds of tomatoes. There are actually far more and weird stuff, right? Tomatoes that are teardrop shaped and white and tomatoes that are huge in orbular that are purple black. There's a lot of diversity in nature and, and these are all natural attributes. So having that all in our data set and then training models against them, both the models related to division but also the models related to actually pathing your way to the environment and a whole host of other things that we layer in there, where one of the other things that we're doing actually is trying to build out that workflow in a way that is kind of Lego brickable. When you go from, let's say, a cucumber to a strawberry, you're not starting from scratch. You take the relevant Lego bricks that apply to both problems and add them to the new workflow as you work on a new crop that makes working on new crops easier. So for example, for our first proto of tomatoes. To get to a prototype that can pick a tomato, that took us about 14 weeks of development effort. It was slow, in many ways imperfect, but just can a robot pick a tomato successfully without damage in a complex environment? That was 14 weeks. And because from the beginning of this project, we have a philosophy of hypermodular, hyperuniversal, the next thing, cucumbers, took us about eight weeks to first proto. And then when we went to strawberries, it was about four weeks to first proto. We're making that investment now. We're building Lego brickable modules physically and models digitally absolutely everywhere. And as we move between crops, we're finding a lot of the reasoning and the physical structure of the system to be extraordinarily portable. That's really interesting how the next thing becomes faster thanks to the, the right way of approaching the problem. It sounds like part of it is the engineering approach is also part of it that the things the computer vision system learns and one crop can be transferred over and you need maybe less data for the next crop. That's the heavy emphasis here. This is not a project one could have attempted five years ago, right? We all know that, but now it is. And by simplifying the hardware and streamlining the hardware to kind of a small set of things you're allowed to do and heavily emphasizing software is the path where we're going down to create the capacity to do what the industry really needs, which is going back to my original point, not building a bespoke machine, but something that actually services a huge chunk of the agricultural industry. Row crop has been heavily automated, right? With the tractor over the last hundred years. And it's part of the reason why those fruits and vegetables are so inexpensive and so abundant. But there are all these things that grow in a bush, grow in a vine, grow in a tree in an orchard that are incredibly are just great for your diet 
and they also taste great so that people don't have to feel like they're giving up anything when they don't get a bag of chips or eating a candy bar. But this is a section of the industry that has been to some sense inaccessible. The fruits and vegetables themselves are highly perishable and the tasks are not easily automatable until now. This is where we're investing that effort in software. It's so interesting that you mentioned that about the, the candy bar, because I mean, you go to the store, it is cheaper to buy a candy bar, which is much worse for you and has actually so much effort going, so much goes into a candy bar, so many different ingredients, and somehow it's cheaper than buying a box of strawberries. Do you think there's a path where that would not be true anymore, where the box of strawberries can be cheaper than the candy bars? There better be, otherwise I'm completely wasting my life. Uh, so I'll explain to you what, what I believe in. So I'm an optimist. I believe that scientists and engineers can build a better world. And looking at human history, we know this to be the case. And for me, I value expanding access to housing, to food, and to healthcare, which are all human rights. And when you think about making a strawberry unbelievably high quality and absolutely delicious and competitive against a candy bar, you actually solve two of those three things, right? Food, we need that daily, but food is medicine. You start eating strawberries every single day on any day where you wanted to reach for a candy bar, and we have a healthier society. And so that's what we're doing, you know, building a hyper local farm for perishable goods so they can be delivered to market really fresh. And we could start not only that, so really fresh, it also changes the flavor. Freshness changes flavor, but there's some hidden things here, right, that people don't think about. Right now, our food supply chain, when we breed crops, and again, not GMO, just source plant breeding humanity has been doing for hundreds of years. When we breed crop, we breed it in part for long haul transit and rough handling so that it can get to the market and be quote unquote fresh. And if we can make hyper local crops, what ends up happening is when you do plant breeding, the trucking and the handling are no longer a variable that you have to be able to account for. Instead, you start emphasizing things like flavor. Let's get a strawberry with really high bricks and a good acid balance. Bricks here being a measurement of sugar content. And we're not talking about candy bar sugar content, but like delicious strawberry sugar content. We have an opportunity by going local in a greenhouse to push that. Also, by going local in a greenhouse, we're able to control the environment that drives the flavor in ways that isn't as attainable outdoors. And all of this comes together to be a product that, that people really gravitate to. I want to be able to have someone be at a gas station in the morning and they're grabbing their cup of coffee and they're seeing a sleeve of apples and a tin of strawberries or whatever. And that's what's sitting on their desk at work. That's what they're snacking on. And that gas station experience where you get to see hyper fresh lives in every part of the country, not just some fancy neighborhood in some fancy city. That's such a beautiful mission that you're on, Josh. I, I love it. Now, as you bring that up, I got to imagine that if you really want to bring the best tomatoes, best strawberries, any kind of fruit that you're growing and vegetables, that as your robot goes down, I guess it's not an aisle, but a row of these vines, it has to also have an understanding of individual needs of these different plants. Can you say a bit about that? Like, is there some kind of individualized care for each plant, each there fruit? could be. Yeah. So now you really hit on the most important part of this story is people look at the technology that we're building and they see picking, which is very important. What they're not seeing and what we're building is exactly what you're talking about. What has been the way in which we made food ubiquitous to folks was abstracting away the local. It's a tractor that allows me to do one acre easily, 10 acres easily, a hundred, a thousand, where we monocrop and we treat every plant as the same and we carpet bomb the earth with mm -hmm. chemicals as we try to not individualize our care. And that has, look, credit where credit's due, it massively expanded the abundance of food during the, the Green Revolution, but the collateral damage is it made the low quality in the ways I just talked about happen. And it also made ag one of the biggest polluters on the planet. And I think 
as we see the news day over day about floods and hurricanes and so forth, forgetting what that means, right? So now let's flip the script. Let's reverse the paradigm. Let's talk about individualized care. This is not something that people are capable of doing in any way. If I'm at a farm, so let's take our 60-acre farm in Moorhead. There's over 700,000 plants there. You know, it is intellectually, when we try to like think about that as a person, how to create 700,000 individual care regimens, that's not like a doable mental task, right? And then when we think about what it means to staff those tasks status quo with people, it's not a doable task. And this is where doing robotics in specialty ag, these fruits and vegetables that we're going out after, becomes pretty beautiful in the sense that people ask me about robots taking jobs. And I can understand why they ask the question, and it's a valid question. But they clearly haven't spent any time on a farm. There is so much work to get done on the farm that frankly does not get done. As a result, you have lower quality product, lower productivity, more environmental impact from waste. Now, all of a sudden, you have robots going around. You are allowing the robots to do individual care because they can think about each individual plant and take different actions. And on top of that, because the robots are doing the harvesting, you suddenly free up your people to start doing the 50 other things they couldn't get to that is individualized care. I'm going to make sure that every plant is perfectly de-leafed today. I am going to go through my trusses, which have flowers on them. You haven't set fruit yet. And I'm going to prune them down to perfectly five flowers so that every truss creates the perfect and optimal yield without waste. Like you start going to this place where both humans and robots have the bandwidth to do individualized care and robots through their collection of data, which is I think where you're going with all of this, can also start creating the individualized care plans because they have the capacity to process. They're, first of all, everywhere on the farm, sensing everything that's out there. And they have the capacity to process all of that data and come up with very nuanced ways of approaching production, where instead of talking about your entire farm as being treated the same because it's all corn, we're going to talk about now a strawberry farm. We're going to say, you know what? This half acre really needs blank. And then you're, you have a worker or a robot, depending upon the task, that gets the instruction to accomplish blank. So that's where we're taking all of this. And it does produce a more sustainable farm and a superior product. One of the things that you're alluding to there is that all the data can get collected, which, of course, very interesting to me. And what I'm imagining is something, and again, I'm very curious about what actually happens. I'm imagining something where the amount of water that's irrigated onto any spot is being tracked and then the growth of each plant is being tracked and all those things are being tracked and that somehow you're going to turn this into much more efficient way of growing all these crops is that the direction things are going we will make it better than it is today but i will point out we're already kicking butt when it comes in that category so when you look at a, a venlo greenhouse this is the style of controlled environment infrastructure that we're using it's a 60-acre robot, right? There are louvered vents across the ceiling that allow us to control the climate and screens that allow us to block light and control the climate. We have the ability to put the water directly into the roots. We have the ability at the root level throughout the farm to sense the composition of the water through its conductivity. We have the ability to instrument plants to figure out what is the weight of kind of, when you take a look at the hydroponic or a soil-based grow bag that the roots are in, you could have it real-time weighed as you flow water in and out of it and start bringing that in as a data source. These are all technologies that, that we're already leveraging today which is why we're able to get 30 times more produce per square meter at the farm. It's why we're using 90% less water. It's one of the major things that allows us to break away from what the status quo industry does when it comes to chemicals, pesticides, herbicides, and go where we're going, which is, you know, we use beneficial insects to attack the bad bugs. But part of that is also is data-driven, like being able to, to track where are the pests? Where are the spider mites? Where are the white flies? And then in a 
data-driven way do a counterattack with good bugs and tracking those good bug populations and tracking those bad bug populations. You know, when you have, let's say, you know how you have like flypaper, you can use computer vision throughout the farm to analyze flypaper and do population counts of different kinds of insects, both the bad bugs that are coming in and the good bugs you use to attack them and start creating data-driven strategies around that. So, so we're using it all over the place. For me, I want to push it further and further and further because ultimately speaking, the kinds of farms that we're building have to be the way we get food in the future. There is a fundamental issue of resilience. One third of the arable land of the world has disappeared over my lifetime. 70% of the world's fresh water, something incomprehensible is going into ag where we know that water access is going to be an existential issue for humanity. And then we have climate issues that are highly chaotic, that are going to keep knocking out crops at a moment's notice. So what are we talking about, right? We need an utterly decentralized food production system that spans the earth. Every single city has protected growing capacity that predictably generates food year round in a way that doesn't damage the environment. And like a brilliant example of this is you can even use a greenhouse to heal the environment. You go to the Netherlands and Royal Dutch Shell has a CO2 line that comes off of its facilities that gets pumped straight into their agricultural corridor and the CO2 gets sequestered in the food. You could do that with waste heat from a factory and capture that and improve sustainability. So what we have is already extremely advanced. We're, we're a tech company and, and we're pushing it further and further every day with artificial intelligence, robotics, and also the biological aspect of this as well. I love the way you're describing this and I like the vision, Josh. I'm just envisioning you at Harvest making a National Geographic documentary on the growth of the perfect strawberry with the bad bug coming in and then the good bug being, you know, brought to the scene. I can just see it play out. I hope you make one of those, <laughs> one of these days. So this is an important thing to note, which is, and I would ask you, go out after listening to this podcast and chat with your friends and ask them, where's their food come from? Where's your food come from? The vast majority of people you speak with have no concept of how food is made. Or if they do, it's like the tip of the iceberg. And having people kind of start to demand that what they eat, you know, mirrors their social values. The first step is understanding how what you're eating right now doesn't. Knowing the collateral damage that it does to the environment is problematic. And I think for the most part, we're unacquainted with how much damage we're doing with the purchases we're making. And also simultaneously, how the purchases you make at the grocery store impact human welfare, right? One of the other major, major missions of App Harvest is to support our workforce and our community and bringing, you know, jobs back to regions of the country. We're in coal country, right? And making sure that we build our farms and our practices and everything so that we are a force for good in our local community. People need to understand where is their food coming from, who is making their food, and what are the processes and the chemicals that are going into it. That is going to be the next step for all of us demanding something better. We're making something better at App Harvest. More should as well. As always, we will also be posting a video recording of this conversation onto our YouTube channel and our website, therobotbrains.ai. We'd love for you to subscribe to our channel to make sure that you get an alert whenever we post a new episode. You can email us at podcast at therobotbrains.ai with any thoughts about the show, suggestions for future guests, or with any questions you may have. You can show your support for the podcast by giving us a review on whichever platforms you listen to our show. And please consider sharing our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI, robotics, and the people bringing them into the real world. Now, Josh, you, you allude to bringing things back to where people are. Now, I'm curious for you personally, if you trace back your journey, where is it that you got first excited about AI and robotics and from there excited about agriculture? It was accidental, I would say, and it happened in startup land. So 
I'm a very mission-driven person. We spend most of our waking hours over our entire life at work. And so if you don't make what you do at work matter, you're going to look back on your life and ask, what was its point? And for me, I need to make sure that my time on earth is spent making it better than when I arrived. I know that sounds really trite, but it means a lot to me. I've always worked on projects that could have societal impact. How I ended up in agriculture is a person who, I mean, I thought I was going to end up in med device or something similar, having come from a, a family that's in medicine. And so I was launching a different company out of my postdoc, and we were going to be a surgical device company. Hmm. And along our startup journey, we discovered that the technology that I invented, I was commercializing, actually had a massive home in food packaging and processing and handling, delivering automation and resilience to the next step down the chain after the grow, after you raise your livestock, after you harvest your fruit. And again, as a person never thought they would be in the food industry, I have to say that I was shocked and appalled by how little tech was in the food industry. I want to use harsh language like that because you have to think about where we as scientists and engineers spend our time. We end up leaving school. We end up trying to make sure that, I don't know, Pick your random project, like trying to make sure that your cell phone has a rounded screen on its edges, right? There's a lot of science and engineering and money that goes into that, and it doesn't matter. And then you have food. That matters. You have healthcare, which I would argue is accomplished more through our diets in a preventative way than through our hospitals after the horses left the barn, right? And, you know, not only were there inventions that we could make for the food industry, there were just tons and tons of examples of things that existed in other industries that are less important that could just be repurposed to our food supply. And that was, let's see, that's got to be going back like almost a decade. I'd started to become incredibly passionate about a bunch of things that are niche and super dry, but I love. And, you know, it has to do with traceability in our food. How do you create systems designs and mechanical designs and material selections that guarantee that you never have foodborne illness outbreaks at a chicken factory, a cheese production, you name it, a lettuce facility. How do we start using artificial intelligence to be more finessed in driving production, you know, as far as top line yield, but also how do you use artificial intelligence to make the same amount of food, but with less electricity and less chemicals and you name it. And so that's where my passion ended up in that it was an opportunity to make a substantial impact. And I think another piece of this for me was that you can have all the aspirations in the world to make it a better place. But if the project that you're working on isn't synchronized with kind of major business priorities that are bigger than your project, you're not going to be able to change things, right? And What's great now is, you know, we have a revolution in e-commerce and brick and mortar retail commerce, and we're having a restructuring of how fulfillment is done. In the case of greenhouse farming, we have the opportunity to build a food production infrastructure that in its distribution of assets and the way we use those assets to bring food to local markets, we can mirror the supply lines of an Amazon, of a Walmart, of an Aldi. And by that, I mean food production that sits next to a fulfillment center that's servicing a community as opposed to food production that lives on the other side of the world. So we have this opportunity to follow one of the biggest changes restructuring the global economy and using it as a tool for to make considerable investments in sustainability, food accessibility, and human health. Josh, I, I love the mission-driven attitude. And I think especially when you start your own company, it helps a lot in recruiting people to join you on the journey. You did your PhD at MIT, went on to do a postdoc at Harvard. Then you were at Soft Robotics for four or five years. And then about three years ago, you decided to start your own company. And I'm curious that starting your own company, that was the way you want to achieve your mission at the time. What triggered that? Maybe going way too far back in the Wayback Machine. Uh -huh. 
I was halfway through grad school when I realized I made a terrible choice. I wanted to be a professor and what I thought professors did was very different from what professors did. An opportunity to take on a mission and build a thing to gain knowledge or build a thing that the world needed. It's hard to do from university life, right? The way you go after problems in university life is, oh, if I accomplish this in 20 years, it will be relevant. Where often, if it was very important to solve that problem, the world would have figured out a way around it before you definitively fixed it 20 years later, and they would have done it in three years. And so it became really apparent to me that I had to take responsibility for technology transfer. I can't just write an academic journal article where I have the throwaway paragraph at the end saying, and this discovery could be applied to medical diagnostics at your bedside and time travel and making a synthetic sun, you know, like the kind of random stuff that you throw out at the end of a journal article that is wild leaps of imagination. But ultimately, if you had to try it unfounded, I approached a professor at Harvard who is famous for tons of things, is the most cited chemist alive, I think shortlist for the Nobel twice, is so many seminal accomplishments. And funny enough, the thing that I think people don't remember him for is like about the $22 billion worth of startups he built. And so at the time he had 40 postdocs who all wanted to become profs. And I approached him not with looking for a job, but with a sales pitch, which was, I want to roll a company out of your lab and we're going to do this. And so we had some ideas as to what those technologies could be. And I had the good fortune of being part of that early team at Harvard that was inventing the field of soft robotics, which I'm proud to say is now its own field of engineering that it's developing into. And even further, I had the good fortune of being allowed to, to leave university and be the first to attempt to commercialize these new inventions coming out of university. And so that, that was the company, Soft Robotics. The beginning of Soft Robotics was about surgical devices and then became an industrial automation company. Along that journey, we had found product market fit, built a product that people loved and had installations in the, the factories and the processing centers and the warehouse Fortune 500 companies around the world. But we were serving a lot of different markets. And the one that I just became obsessed with was food. And the other part that I became obsessed with was fresh. So one of the dilemmas, not a dilemma commercially, great commercially, but a d dilemma for me personally at the company was that a lot of the customers that loved what we were doing were the same customers who bought into the automation and mass production of food in these food factories where things like Twinkies come out the other side. And there's a ton of money there. Companies making a ton of money there, but that's not where my love was. And I was looking. And so, yes, you asked me, when did it all happen? So as a person who was deeply passionate about making inventions relative to society, and having proven to myself that I, I could do that at a business starting with nothing and then looking out into the world and seeing a gigantic hole for me was tractors automated so many different aspects of crops, many of which ain't good for your diet. And you mentioned strawberries. No one's automating a strawberry. There are nascent projects in it, but it's not at scale. And if no one automates a strawberry, no one's going to eat it instead of Snickers. If no one's going to automate, and you can actually make small snackable sweet cucumbers and pepper, you'd be surprised. You can huh. make so many different snackable kinds of produce. A lot of the tiny fruits and vegetables have great sugar content, a really interesting texture and taste. If you could automate a lot of this stuff and you could making a, a series of other technological advancements like the one we're talking about now, we can transform a section of industry that's been abandoned by technologists. And it is a brutally hard and vicious goal, but heck, why not? What was important was for me feeling very passionate about what I, what I was doing with my day, finding a team of just brilliant people that were excited by the same. And the sappy thing that I always talk about is Root was a business for my daughter. This isn't like a long range problem. I don't think time is our friend right now. I think that when you look at what is the distribution of water resources and land resources and what it's going to take to feed the world the way we've structured our food system now that long ahead of climate change materially demolishing our soil and our water supply, which it's going to do and it's going to do fast. 
ahead of that, we're going to have a lot of chaotic disruption, disruptions in water and food access. That's going to create instability. That's going to create problems, let alone the fact that food access and water access is going to be pretty spooky on her lifetime. I would think that if you asked me this question 20 years ago, it would be my altruistic vision of achieving that for my grandkids and my great grandkids. And that's not where we're at. So when you're a scientist or engineer, right, you have multi-dimensional parameter spaces that you do optimization problems on. And, and typically you find yourself in like a tiny little local well, energy minima in that multi-dimensional space. And with small disturbances to this complex system, behaviors of the world around you, the variables you're measuring, there's some approximation of linear or some sort of simple polynomial, right? As you pink, 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 push the system a little bit off of where its set point is, get behaviors you can understand. I'm terrified about the world when we push that little point in parameter space really hard and we discover right next to our current optimized version of Earth is a freaking cliff in parameter space. And we really go off the rails in the ways in which we make our planet habitable. So for her, I need all of this to work. We are making all of this work. And I am, this was actually a huge motivation behind joining forces with Jonathan and the whole team at App Harvest was the capacity to be part of a team that shares our values and was doing big things fast. You know, one of the things I absolutely loved, I, I remember going to see the Moorhead facility when we were kind of a vendor customer relationship and kind of partnership relationship. We've been helpful to each other for years now and seeing them start to, to stand up the Moorhead facility and then COVID happened and miraculously they didn't stop building. They built a massive 60 acre complex high-tech growing environment in the middle of a pandemic at speeds that would be unfathomable under ideal circumstances and then employed a whole community, right? That is a mission you want to get on. Those are people you want to work with. And that's what we're tracking to is, look, if the world won't recognize the fact that this isn't a theoretical exercise anymore, we'll just have to lead the charge and wait for everyone else to follow. That's so intriguing. I like your, your notion of joining forces with App Harvest. At the same time, I got to imagine when you build a startup, it's your creation. I mean, just got to be a little bit in you as like, am I really going to let go of the, you know, running my own effort? I met the folks at App Harvest. This was in 2018, just as I had kicked off Root. We've known each other ever since. And so what made this so compelling was knowing over years of experience with each other that we truly did want to achieve the same things. And so this is a continuation of our mission. In fact, it's an acceleration of our mission. I had a whole product roadmap of things I was going to build under the root banner. The mm. difference under the App Harvest banner is we're doing it all faster and all at the same time. That's so interesting. Now, that actually brings me to something else that's been on my mind for a bit now. We've talked about quite a bit about strawberries, cucumbers, and tomatoes. And I think tomatoes is where, where it all started. And of course, startup has to be very focused and, and pick one thing, do it well, and then build out from there. But I'm curious as you think about kind of the bigger vision of what should be possible. Of all the things we might see in the grocery store, what could be covered by this new technology and this 90% more water efficient and so forth? Yeah, so we talk about tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, leafy greens, strawberries, raspberries, eggplants, like you can run down the mushrooms, for example, is another good one. You can run through the grocery aisle and start applying this style of technology to all of those crops. It's not fanciful. You can already find economically viable and sustainable production environments that do all the ones I just described. But you can expand from there. You know, pieces of this technology stack are relevant to other parts of the world. When you have a modern trellised orchard, people heavily trellis orchards to make two-dimensional walls of fruit as opposed to three-dimensional trees. It's not because they want to accommodate robots. It's because you end up getting about 30% more yield per acre when you mm. do that because if you're growing crops like an orchard, you're in the light harvesting business, right? Those sorts of production environments would also heavily benefit from this sort of picking technology. Some of the work that we're doing in artificial intelligence would be equally relevant 
when you look at medium technology infrastructure as it relates to you can grow raspberries hydroponically in buckets outside under the polyethylene of a hoop house. And the stuff that we're talking about is just as relevant there. So there is so much that we can do with this technology. To your point, you got to focus, you got to deliver, which is why right now we're really training our guns on the fruits and vegetables that, that I just described. But as you start forming more and more of the pieces of this platform technology, the opportunities are pretty endless. Now, in terms of endless opportunities, there's something that I'm not knowledgeable in agriculture. So this might be a completely, you know, wrong question. But if I think about crops, I think about maybe strawberries want a certain kind of minerals and things from the soil. And maybe then a tomato wants something else. And maybe raspberry wants something else. And what if you put them all interleaved? Literally like one tomato plant, one strawberry plant, one cucumber plant. Is there anything you can get from that? Obviously, it'd be a lot harder to manage, but that's exactly what you're so good at. So, yeah, so that's actually a really, really insightful point. So I'm not sure about the exact combination that you just described, yeah. but just because I'm a scientist here, so I get nervous about saying things I don't know. But I would say that historically, right, we look at how land was managed in the Americas a long time ago by its indigenous people. And we see that there are so many different kinds of mixed cultivation systems to make these sort of symbiotic growing environments. And that is something that you can recapture with artificial intelligence and robotics going to talk about things like individualized care that becomes intractable when it's one farmer on one tractor with one massive tool. It's something you could do. One, I say one fun example of this is when we talk about aquaponics, right? Which is you could do hydroponic growing and run a fish farm where you have this symbiotic relationship between tanks where you're growing fish and having that water be united with the water that's feeding rootstocks. This is not something that we're doing at App Harvest right now, but it's something that many folks are experimenting with and they create a bit of a, a circular ecosystem there. That's so interesting. Now, today, if we want to, well, I don't know if it's even possible, but if we want to see Virgo and all the other kind of advanced AI in action, I think we have to come to Moorhead, Kentucky. Is that right? It's not a bad thing. Kentucky, it's a great place to visit. But I imagine it, you, you're, you're talking about a global coverage and being local everywhere. Is there anything you can share about maybe other locations that are going to be popping up in the future? Right now, we're on a mission to do uh, 12 farms by 2025. This is focused in Appalachia because of that point of being within 70% of the U.S. population in one day's drive. Very significant when you realize that right now, 70% of the U.S. population is at the tail end of the supply chain. Like you could be picking a strawberry in Mexico and getting it on your store shelf eight, 10 days later, right? So that is where we're building out these farms. But at the same time, as we look at expanding it globally, uh, there'll be more opportunities to see this technology. One of the other things that we're actually, to your point, that it's hard to come to a production environment and see, just like I can't walk up to Tesla and say, show me the factory. One of the things that we're doing, and it's very important, is standing up hydroponic growing environments at schools across the state. And that's important because kids need to understand that there is an amazing career ahead of them in high-tech farming. And so we teach high-tech farming in collaboration with local schools with, these are container farms that do leafy greens and we plunk them down at school campuses across the state. And we're going to be expanding on that and making the ability to work with the robots and work with the hydroponics and work with the AI more and more accessible to really, really energize the community, democratize access to this, this kind of high-tech education and build our own army of super modern American farmers. Well, you kind of partially beat me to the punchline of the next question, because I was going to ask you, what's the best way, you know, if somebody wants to get involved, wants to participate in this, seems like part of it is the setup you have. Are there other things that you would recommend people maybe do or best ways to engage. Yeah, we're hiring. 
So if you're looking for a job just across the spectrum in technology roles, you are a full stack developer, you do DevOps, you do machine learning, computer vision, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, firmware, like there isn't a class of engineering or data science that we're not going after. So go to the website. We're expanding the team rapidly and take a look. Outside of that, obviously, there is more and more educational material that you can get access to online, which is also a wonderful way to start. If I go to the grocery store, if my grocery store carries your produce, would it say App Harvest on the box or what would I see? It does say App Harvest on the box. So you, you'll see our logo, which is these two sweeping green lines that that kind of form in kind of rainbow shape arcs that represent the hills that are around our beautiful farm. Yeah, this is, you can find it in the grocery store now. We're going to be massively expanding production as we bring more and more of these farms online. There's a few coming online shortly and you'll be able to, to spot it in your grocery store. Wow, beautiful. So... Josh, one of the things that stood out to me when doing my research last night was Martha Stewart is on the board of directors of App Harvest. How did that happen? And what is she doing there? So, you know, our aspirations, it's not to be a produce company that sells a tomato, that sells a strawberry. We're a food company that focuses on fresh, just like Frito-Lay can focus on chips, right? We're focused on fresh. And any way that we can deliver amazing customer experiences through those fresh products. And frankly, we're a movement. You know, we're a B Corp. Not everything about what we do is completely about profit. It's about maximizing social welfare. So we have ESG goals around environmental sustainability and our ability to elevate our workforce. You know, a lot of times you'll talk to uh, technologists and robotics and, and AI and they'll kind of give that tone-deaf, upskilling narrative of we'll make more skilled employees who take care of the robots and it's tone-deaf because they're not doing it. We're doing it. We're putting our money where our mouth is and we are upskilling a workforce in Kentucky and investing in education, investing in our communities. And so that that's where Martha Stewart comes in. Obviously, she is a remarkable entrepreneur herself and she has built incredible brands and she has brought communities around projects that she's created. And that sort of ability to understand all of the steps that you go through to, to get to that, if that's your goal, that's the wisdom and the insight that she brings to what we're building. That's really exciting. I also read the story that she was supposed to uh, taste one of your tomatoes as one of the big tests to see if, if App Harvest is really a place she should be associating with. It's a crucial point. You know, you can't do what we have set out to do unless the product is fantastic. That's where she comes in. And, and obviously it was a relevant proof point to show that we can make best in class produce in addition to delivering all of our goals for the community and the environment and the world at large. Well, Josh, your whole story is so beautiful. I love how mission driven and passionate you are about bringing us the best possible food in the ecologically best possible way for all of us, especially for, for your daughter, but for all of us. Thank you so much for coming on. Learned so much. And thank you for having me. It's, it's wonderful to get an opportunity to tell the world about what we're building. Well, I really enjoyed it. And yeah, you got me sold in Moorhead, Kentucky. So I, I got to come visit some time now. Happy to have you. We are dropping new interviews every week, so subscribe to The Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI and the people bring it into the real world.